So I'm um, I'm currently taking a course called the Equivalence of Ethics and Enlightenment, and I wanted to share. We're not very far along yet, but um, I wanted to share something of the course content because it's been really interesting, as well as I'm going to add some of my own uh, reflections and discoveries from participating in this. So first of all, it's interesting to consider the title, The Equivalence of Ethics and Enlightenment. Do you think that's true? Are you interested in finding out? <laughs> it's kind of intriguing, right? I, um, I immediately wanted to take the course because I feel intuitively that there's a lot of truth in that title and wanted to learn more about that. Now, of course, uh, the word enlightenment is not easily definable, <laughs> and it turns out that neither is the word ethics. <laughs> so maybe um, maybe that helps <laughs> in, in equating them. Um, but I want to, um, yeah, I want to talk about these terms a bit and um, how they're used in the teachings or really more the ethics. So the English word ethics, it turns out, has quite a long history in the West. Um, and so that means we have to be careful with it because it comes with a lot of associations that have been developed through Western culture, which are not necessarily what was meant in the Buddhist teachings. Those come from a different culture. Um, still applicable, but um, we have to, we should be careful. So, for example, in Christianity, there's a huge study of ethics. There are whole books called Ethics. Um, it's a really a full way of thinking. It's a system. It's maybe even a codification. So, in, um, yeah, in Western religions, there are whole volumes called Ethics. And then more recently, we also have... Um, secular studies of ethics in the West. They're not only religious. So, for example, there's the philosophy of ethics, which is logical and rational. It looks for uh, first principles of what right conduct is or what ethics is. There's also, um, and this is more recent, there's evolutionary ethics. And this looks more at our basic instincts and is probably more emotional than rational. You know, it looks deeper than what we could think about as ideas of ethics. It says, actually, um, built in to our very system are ideas of, are, are not ideas, actually feelings about what is right and wrong in a sense. But there tend to be uh, several different axes. Right and wrong is too broad. So, for example, there's harm and not harm. There's um, attraction and disgust. These are very visceral, right? There's sense of fair and unfair. Babies can display this. Just and unjust. These are things that are um, gut feelings that we have. That's not right. To give a particularly vivid example, um, just feel it's I won't draw it out the way the teacher of the course did, but um, we have a gut reaction against incest. We feel that that is disgusting. A brother and a sister having sex, for example. Can you feel that sense in you? So 
there are people who have looked at this and said, look, deep in our being, there are things that are programmed in to be things that we think we ought to do and not ought to do. So this is all part of secular ethics, pretty well developed in Western culture, although we can always do more. However, um, if you then take that framework and you look at Buddhist texts, you will be surprised because the, the wisdom texts of Buddhism don't have whole books and volumes about ethics specifically. It's not really singled out. If you want to find the Buddhist teachings on ethics, they're scattered throughout all the texts. You can get them. You can draw them out. But why isn't there one book on that? And why is that needed in the West and somehow not in the East? Or do they not think of it in the East? Do they not think it's important? Not at all, actually. But if you look, the, the ethical teachings are considered part of the whole. They're completely integrated. We might even say they're assumed uh, along the path. Of course, of course you're going to develop ethics. You can't be enlightened without ethics. That's the message. Whereas somehow in Christianity, it's something separate. So this is not a comparative religion class. It's just to point out how this is seen. So you see this particularly in the early texts, is that ethics is totally inseparable and interdependent with the whole of the teachings. So what's the picture being painted here? The movement toward awakening which we're all engaged in if we're doing mindfulness practice, whether you think that's your aim or not. Um, it's an inner transformation, and it will result in an ethical transformation. So this means that our ethics are going to shift over time. So then that means also that looking for first principles may not be so relevant, because they're going to change. They get deeper, they get broader, they're part of the path, and the path that changes us. So there's a whole ecosystem that's being cultivated in awakening, in the practices and teachings that are offered in Buddhism. And ethics is just part of that. It has to be. Um, there's no way, this is part of the equivalence, there's no way you could be enlightened without being ethical. It's just not possible. You don't have to take this as a belief. I'm offering this as a premise, as all the teachings are offered. So let me talk then a little bit. Hmm, this is cutting in and out, isn't it? Can everybody hear if I just speak up a bit? Probably, um, but there's something wrong with this sound. There is, isn't there? Without straining, I can't make out what you're saying. It's loud, but it's... It's not balanced, is it? I'm going to turn it off. If I speak like this, can everyone in the room hear? Okay. Yeah, we've been working on the sound system, and I'm sorry to say that we clearly are still working on it. It's a work in progress, like our path. <laughs> so I will make an attempt to, to uh, speak with good volume. I'm glad, there, um, I'm glad everyone here has some ability to hear. You can move forward if, you're, if it's not so clear. Okay, so um, let me move then into talking about the five lay precepts because we often think that these are the essence of ethics. 
the five precepts, right? This is what we take when we go on retreat. We agree to these five precepts. For a while, we had them listed on our website as a um, component of our culture here. They might be in that little booklet that we have. And often monastic teachers, for instance, will emphasize keeping the precepts as the foremost ethical duty of lay people. That's, That's what you guys should be doing. And so... One challenge with these is that as a nominal code of ethics, you know, code of conduct, um, we might think that the five precepts are all we need to know as lay people. Um, also, there's the baggage that comes with them. You know, we have this list of five things. I'll say in a moment what they are, just as a reminder. But we have this list of five things that we're supposed to abstain from. And so then that brings up all of our associations with commandments, um, other codifications that we are, uh, that we have in our lives. So all these associations about uh, morality that we may have learned from a monotheistic upbringing. I don't know what everyone's upbringing was, but even if you didn't have um, a monotheistic religion in your house, or if you didn't have much religion at all when you were growing up, this culture is steeped actually in those ideas. So you pick them up somehow if you've been living here for a while. So we have these five precepts, just so that we're all on the same page, I'll read them. They're all framed in the classical teachings as abstentions, things that we don't do. So to refrain from killing living beings, to refrain from taking that which is not given, to refrain from sexual misconduct, to refrain from false speech, and to refrain from the use of intoxicants. These are pretty common that you'll hear in religions, right? But first of all, in in Buddhism, these are really framed as practices. They're definitely not commandments. You don't have to do them in order to be Buddhist. You don't have to believe them before you're allowed to walk in the door of this center. Uh, You don't get punished. if you don't do them. It's actually not a sin. Um, Particularly, these things are, um, they're things that bring a lot of harm and suffering. And so the Buddha just said, if you want to live a life of non-harming, here are some really good guidelines. Check it out for yourself. (laughs) Um, However, having set that up as our most common understanding of Buddhist ethics, I'm now going to claim that that's actually not Uh, really what's the important part of ethics. Deeper study shows that the precepts, at least their role in the teachings, don't carry the weight that ethics does in the, uh, the sense that I talked about it earlier, as ethics as a component of the path of awakening, as something essential that's going to be grown and cultivated in our being as we move toward freedom of the heart. The five precepts don't carry that weight. They're, they're, not, they're not the essence of that. So what is? You know, what is? And if you look through the texts, a reasonable candidate for that is contained in the Pali term kusala, which is translated in two different ways. It's either translated as skillful or as wholesome. And you may have... Um, you may have even heard those terms in some of the teachings. And, of course, there's the opposite, akusala, 
unskillful or unwholesome. These terms are used throughout the early texts to refer both to the development of the mind and also to our behavior within relationships and community. You know, to be skillful in the way that we relate with others and also to be skillful, to develop skillful qualities of mind through practice. This is the essence that it carries through the text and it's something that's cultivated and developed. We start out with a certain level of skill, whatever, wherever we're at is fine, and it gets more and more skillful as we go along. We get better and better at avoiding suffering. <laughs> that's how the path works. It's interesting, right? So kusala is probably the best candidate as a Buddhist word for ethics uh, in the religious sense of this term. So kusala is intimately tied to practice. Skillfulness is something that we must develop, and it can have many different levels, right? Our understanding of it will change over time, and crucially, it's somewhat situation-dependent, Right? What's skillful in one situation and with one person might not be skillful in another situation with another person. Can anybody not think of a case where that's true? Don't you have some things where you know, oh, in this case, it's really better if I just don't say anything with this particular person. I've just learned to, but with this other person, um, you know, it's very important for me to speak up and they really appreciate and can hear when I, and if I don't speak up, then somehow they're confused, and so it's actually better for me to do that. You know, we get a sense with different people of how to be skillful. And also within our own mind, uh, we learn, for example, when is it that it's good for me to really stand up to my mind and say, no, we're going to make some effort here. You know, I really need to be careful and not do this certain thing. And other times when we say, okay, it's fine, you know, um, calm acceptance, whatever it is. There are different approaches also to working with our mind and with our habits that are bringing us difficulty. Um, so we get skillful also in working with our own mind. So we see that wrapped up with this idea of kusala, of skillfulness, um, are ideas of mindfulness, ideas sati, clear comprehension, Sampachana, and also to be sensitive to our intention as well as the results of our actions. We're going to have to pay attention. <laughs> if there isn't a code of ethics and there isn't a set thing that we do each time, we have to just be skillful, we're going to have to pay attention. <laughs> so this is, um, this is why it's folded in with the rest of the teachings. Now, the teachings don't just leave us hanging and say, well, you've got to just figure out for yourself what works in each case. They do uh, say some things about what is skillful or wholesome. So actions that bring harm are said to come from the three roots that are called akusala, greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, we're, we're given a clue that these areas, greed, hatred, and delusion, are areas that we're going to be unskillful. They're always going to bring poor results in some way. Now... This doesn't mean any kind of desire or any kind of, you know, setting a boundary. That's not what greed and hatred mean. Those are one things that have sort of a compulsive quality to them, a sense of grabbing on and holding, or a sense of pushing away and turning away. 
or delusion, you know, just not getting it, uh, not being willing to, to see. So, and then, in, you know, in contrast, actions that tend to be bring benefit and be helpful and, and good for people, ourselves and others, are ones that come from the three roots that are called kusala, which are just the opposite, non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Sometimes people think those are vague, what is non-greed, really. But I like it because non-greed is quite, quite broad. You know, it could include generosity. That's pretty much the opposite of greed. But it can also include contentment, for example, patience, other things like that. So I think there's quite a lot of kusala out there, since non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion can include a lot of things, right? So we experiment and check this out for ourselves. Once again, you're not being told you need to not have these three unwholesome roots. We already do. <laughs> we do. As human beings, we have them. Um, the question is how we work with them and how we learn to diminish their power. One of them is by seeing them <laughs> when they come, seeing them clearly and not acting on them. The other is by um, deliberately promoting and acting from the wholesome roots. Like in a flower garden, if you plant a bunch of good stuff, it'll crowd out the, uh, the weeds. Of course, you have to pull the weeds also, but you can also help by um, planting things that will come in. That's kind of like how it is with the wholesome qualities. So we might say that the, the precepts are very clear about telling us what to do or not to do, um, whereas the concept of skillful or wholesome tells us more about how, although it also pertains to what, but it includes the how in a certain way. And we can see this clearly in the fact that it is possible to undertake and act out the precepts in ways that are unskillful, actually, akusala. So we might, for example, get very rigid about the precepts, you know, don't kill, don't steal, don't lie. You know, we could hold those really tight and we could get really um, kind of uh, bring a lot of tension into our body and mind about upholding these strictures. And we can also get really irritating to other people if we demand that everybody follow these precepts and they need to be this way and that way and this is what's right. Do you know people like this, <laughs> you know, or have some of this tendency? It comes from a pretty insecure place, actually, to grasp onto moral rules and demand that they be upheld 100% uh, by everybody really, really unskillful, actually. It's not skillful. It doesn't lead to the liberation of our heart to behave in that way, to think in that way. I don't think you should be killing, but uh, holding on to that in a rigid way that brings tightness to your heart is not part of the path. There is a sutta that praises encouraging others to adopt the precepts. So these aren't really only individual. It's an interesting sutta. It says that a, it describes a good person. It says the good person is somebody who uh, refrains from the destruction of life, 
who refrains from taking what is not given, who refrains from all the five precepts. And then it says, what is the person who is superior to the good person? And it says the person superior to the good person is the person who abstains from taking life and encourages others to abstain from taking life. The person who abstains from taking what is not given and encourages others in that restraint. So we could get the sense, you know, that that's, um, you know, that is a good thing to do. But again, there's this skillfulness, right? So I used to attend, I used to attend a meditation center, uh, not in this area, that was across the street from a Planned Parenthood clinic. And once a week, a man would come and stand outside with a big sign, you know, where the cars could see him, that had a very graphic image and some graphic words with it. And, you know, he was an anti-abortion activist. And so in his mind, I'm sure, he was encouraging others not to kill. Skillful, more superior to the good person, according to this sutta, to encourage others not to, to kill. But his method was so unskillful that I did not feel connected to his message or to what he was concerned about. You know, I just, I, I, it was hard for me to do that based on what he was, the way he was displaying that in public. He was also hard to get, engage with in meaningful conversation because his views were so strong and so rigid. You know, you just couldn't, you couldn't talk to this guy. And I, I've used a particular example um, because it was a real person. You know, I, this happened. It's a, it's a true uh, occurrence. But, you know, the, let's say the other side of the political spectrum is not immune from this kind of rigidity also, this kind of harshness, this kind of attachment to views and demand that everyone obey. Very unskillful. I'm sorry to see that so much in our political arena these days. So the direct teachings on behavior, such as the precepts, seem to be less clear pointers toward the path of liberation, the path of liberation as the teachings on skillfulness, how we do things, how we engage, whether we're really cultivating qualities that are wholesome, that are opening the heart, that are connecting that are reducing suffering in our mind and the mind of others. So there's an abundance of sutta passages that link unskillfulness to not being on the path and skillfulness to the development of the path. I'll just read a couple. So bhikkhus, which means practitioners, it means monks, but we can substitute practitioners, do not think unwholesome thoughts, that is, sensual thoughts, thoughts of ill will, and thoughts of harming. For what reason? These thoughts are unbeneficial, irrelevant to the fundamentals of the holy life, and do not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment, and nibbana. When you think, you should think, this is suffering. You should think this is the origination of suffering. You should think this is the cessation of suffering, and you should think this is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. So thoughts of the Four Noble Truths, 
For what reason? These thoughts are beneficial, relevant to the fundamentals of the holy life, and lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, peace, direct knowledge, enlightenment, and nibbana. So it's pretty clear that we fill our minds, our very thoughts, with thoughts that are skillful, thoughts of wisdom in this case, but we could have thoughts of compassion, thoughts of generosity. They would all fit into the fundamentals of the holy life. Here's another one. Practitioners, whatever states there are that are skillful, partaking of the skillful, pertaining to the skillful, they are all rooted in diligence, converge upon diligence, and diligence is declared to be the chief among them. When a person is diligent, it is expected that she will develop and cultivate the seven factors of enlightenment. So we, here we have a link between all the qualities that are skillful, converging on diligence and practice, which leads to the seven factors of enlightenment. For those who aren't as familiar with those, the seven factors of enlightenment are the qualities that arise in the mind when it's getting close to letting go. And they become incorporated into the character of people who have begun to understand the noble truths. So again, we see skillful leading directly toward awakening. So the suggestion is to, you know, please, please do follow the precepts. I'm not arguing against them. But this quality of kusala, of skillfulness, I think carries more weight and is worthy of our, more of our attention. The cultivation of factors of mind uh, that are going to support us, <laughs> support us in our everyday living, mindfulness, factors of awakening, the Brahma Viharas, of metta, compassion, joy, equanimity. These qualities are really, these are about ethics. These are ethical qualities that also, of course, support awakening. How could they not? The two are bound together. Ethics and enlightenment are equivalent in the end. To be seen for yourself, but this, that's the premise. So here's some reflection questions. How do you hold the precepts in your life? Meaning, how do you relate to them? What meaning? What meaning do the precepts have for you? Would you change the precepts in any way if you could rewrite them for your own life? They're not commandments. We could change them if we wanted. Would you change them in any way? How do you feel about becoming more skillful or more wholesome? What do those words evoke for you? Are there other words around ethics that are maybe also meaningful to you or more meaningful to you? Sometimes people have a little reaction to the word wholesome. Is there something that works better for you? So those were serious questions. I'd be curious if anything came up. This is what I wanted to offer tonight. I'd, I'd love to hear from some of you. 
Yeah, please. Um, I was just thinking, add the word try into those precepts. What about where trying is, you're trying, you're making a... You're making an effort. An effort. Especially in the situation of relapsing on alcohol, per se. So you would try to refrain from intoxicants is how you would want to word it. And I asked someone in in rooms here about that, a friend, and she said, well, we're trying to be in the present moment. So let's say if you relapsed and you're back, it's not like, it's like you're in the present now, and that's what matters. Past, you know, there's misgivings, and you're trying, and so you're making, you're making the best effort that you can. Doing in a college try, let's say. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, what I hear in that um, is a, a, a strong element of compassion. You know, of understanding that this is something that we apply ourselves to, but um, you know. We didn't in the past necessarily do so well at that, and even now we might um, not make it every time, but we're committed to trying. That's what, is that a somewhat accurate restatement of what you were pointing toward? Yeah. Um, I don't think we want to put the word in with the, the precept about killing them. That might not fit too well, but... Yeah. But particularly the fifth one you wanted to, to add, the, yeah. the trying. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. There is a... Oh, go ahead. Well, I, and I, I hope I, I'm not trying to sneak in any kind of justification or denial factor in there, too. So. Yeah, I hear that. I didn't, I didn't sense that you were. Um, I was going to say, and this may be relevant for your additional comment also, is that there's a, um, a nice teaching about Um, about this idea of reflecting on the fact that in the past, you know, we weren't necessarily keeping all of those precepts. And it says that a person um, can reflect on this and realize, okay, um, you know, that thing I did earlier, that wasn't very skillful. Um, And so there's sort of an acknowledgement of it. And then the encouragement is, is just as you said, to, to just sort of drop it in that, shame or guilt um, is really not considered skillful. <laughs> so tying in the skillful again, guilt is considered quite akusala on this path because it burdens us. Um, and the, you know, the past is the past. It's, it's already done. Um, and so you're right. We're in the present moment. And what we can do now is we can at least acknowledge that, okay, that was a screw up in the past. But at this time, uh, I'm going to intend, set my intention to not do that again. And that's kusala. That is skillful to admit the mistake and then move on. And if, of course, there's some slip, uh, which there inevitably will be because we have these habits and they're hard to break, um, then we do the same thing. You know, we can say, okay, <laughs> that was not so good. Uh, didn't want to do it that way, and now I recommit myself. 
And it may sound, it doesn't, it's not the same as just, you know, always having a pass and always being able to say, well, I'll just, you know, say I'm sorry and, and then repeat my behavior. The understanding is that actually, if you are sincerely setting an intention, uh, you actually, that act itself undercuts the habit a little bit. It will be a little weaker next time, um, which I found to be true, actually, if I'm sincere in saying, and then there's mindfulness. You know, we have to be aware. We have to watch. When is it that the mind starts to go for something that's not in line with the precepts? And we can watch in our mind, okay, what are the conditions that make it most likely for me to be willing to break one of these? Um, and so that's skillful. <laughs> that's skillful. Part of the skillfulness is to observe our mind. And then, you know, maybe we don't, the first time we see it, we don't quite have the power to overcome it, but we saw the condition. Ah, um, like in AA, for example, there's that phrase, we're supposed to check if we're hungry, angry, tired, or lonely, halt, lonely or tired. And those are the qualities that are often present in the mind when people are going to have difficulty refraining, right? So that's one suggestion of four things. We might want to check in our own mind what, what's there, or if we have trouble, say, with false speech, you know, we don't have to only focus on the fifth precept. There are times when all of us say things that aren't quite true. <laughs> and then we think later, okay, what was going on there? Often there's fear. We're afraid to say what's true, or we're not sure in the last moment, or whatever it is. And we start to see the qualities that lead us to that. So this is all part of the skill of working with our mind. Um, yeah. So I kind of went a little farther than what you were saying, but I, I see you're nodding. So did that address yeah, some of what you were saying? Yeah. Could additional tools or reminders. Yeah. Tools. Yeah. We just want to observe the, you know, it's it's not random how things happen. We can observe what what the flow is and when it is when it's likely, because it's not you know it's not that we're commanded to not break these precepts again. It's like we know that those lead to harm. It's harmful when we do those things. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how it's to me it it it, um, it boils boils down to skillfulness is very much related to mindfulness. It really is, yeah. And being an aware, mm -hmm. awareness, and how sincerity is also practically synonymous with uh, being aware. It's, you're seeing something and there's no, um, you're seeing for what it is. And yeah. from that, you can feel confident in what you're seeing. And it allows you not to engage or have any type of, you know, reactive. Get drawn into it, yeah. 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 But it's interesting how sincerity is usually associated with an emotion, so it's very felt yeah. and very effective. And it then is. awareness is something that seems more like it's perceptual, mm -hmm. but they're actually very They're similar. very related, aren't yeah, they? Very related. Yeah. Um, yeah, this could be a whole other topic, but I, I find that um, to really do the path well, we're going to have both sides. You know, we're going to have the affective side. And also the cognitive side, and or the perceptual or the more mental. And 
You know, often people have a preference for one of those or the other. You know, just a tendency that they're more this type or that type. No one's really a type of anything. We all have both. But we can look in ourselves if we tend to favor one or the other or think that one is one is really where the juice is and the other one, well, you know, um, because we're going to ultimately have them integrated and, uh, and do them both together, develop them both together. Yeah. One of the questions you asked is, would you change any of them? Yeah, would you change any of them? Can I go off of the first person you mentioned? You know, alcohol is very deeply integrated as a social aspect in our culture. And I understand why the framing substances that can alter your state of mind is beneficial. Um, but I found that being in social settings, sometimes it's very difficult to explain that concept. And they automatically assume, oh, are you pregnant? <laughs> and they can't accept the fact that you don't want to drink, mm. you know? Um, but it might be some strange that it's an outlier. So I feel that I struggle a lot because sometimes I'm just committed. Like, yeah, I guess I'm just going to drink and be social. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I do believe in concepts and ultimately any substance that can alter your state of being seems clearly can create a filter towards truly anything in life. Yeah. Yeah, this is an interesting point. Um, This is why the precepts are practices. And so, I mean, I love that you've seen all of this, right? You've seen the the conflict that arises or the uncomfortableness in certain situations. Um, And then that provides you, there isn't a right answer here um, necessarily, but it provides you with something to work with. You know, where's the suffering? What is it that, you know, when I feel like there are certain social requirements, what is really required? And, you know, does the precept actually say that you can't have any alcohol? Some people interpret it to say that you shouldn't, just shouldn't take enough alcohol that your mind gets altered, you know, and if you, you're pretty small, so (laughs) one drink might be enough for you. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But, um, you know, so we can play with that, and then does that feel like we're nibbling at the edge? This, there's, there's no right answer, but it's an interesting um, thing to play with and look at in our mind. Because if you're willing to, if you if you're get overridden by a simple social thing like not being able to say, no, I just want ginger ale, what else, what else are you giving into um, so, in other places in your life? I don't know. I'm just throwing this out, this idea. So you have a... Um, some vulnerability to wanting to fit in socially. That can be a good thing. It can be integrative. It can be um, connecting with people. And if it can also lead to trouble at some point. So these are things to look at. There's also a wider consideration. I know somebody who used to feel that it was, used to, um, you know, take maybe one drink or whatever, 
Um, she never got drunk. She wasn't interested in that, but, you know, in a social sense. And then at some point she decided not to because she felt that in the bigger picture, um, her accepting alcohol enabled others to do so. She became an enabler. If she was in public um, drinking, she herself was not alcoholic or, you know, didn't have that stricture necessarily. But people who didn't have as fine control as she did and couldn't make that choice so easily, she felt that her behavior would actually be damaging to them. So out of uh, compassion for other beings, she chose not to drink and to make herself safe for others in that way. So there's, there are a lot of different ways to think about these things in many different dimensions. I appreciate that, um, you know, on retreats, we don't allow anybody to have any alcohol. And I don't know of anyone, I've never heard of anyone bringing alcohol on retreat. But one of the beautiful things about it is that then a retreat setting is completely safe for people who have difficulty with alcohol or drugs because there just isn't any there and there's no support for that. And so they can feel the strength, the safety, they can relax. Whereas in a world here where the boundaries are a little looser, you could run into it at any time, they have to be a little bit more on guard, right? So when we start looking at the social dimension, which I'm glad you highlighted, there's a lot of ways to think about it, right? These precepts work into so many areas of our heart and our being and our mind. Um, and we have to find the most peaceful way to be with them, which may change over time. Yeah, please. I think the word intoxicant is really interesting and important. Uh -huh. At first, it seemed like an archaic word, but if you just see that the base root of it is toxic, intoxicant, right? It puts a whole different meaning on it, especially in the world today. Because mm. if I took it to an extreme, then I shouldn't even go outside and breathe the air where there's air pollution from all the cars, because then I'm taking in intoxicants. And I think what's toxic for one person is not so necessary for another. I think understanding what is poisonous to us is crucial. Yeah. We need to look very carefully at our own body-mind system. And yeah. even like prescription drugs, pharmaceutical companies, there's a lot of uh, chemicals that are very harmful, but they're, it's, it's complicated. I mean, it is. that When we start thinking more carefully about the precepts, they tend to get complicated. And then we can always return uh, to, is there suffering or not? That's actually the, the ultimate question for us. Is this leading toward or away from suffering? And so, yeah, for sure, we don't want to take in substances that are harmful for our particular body, although, you know, we can't avoid the pollution outside. Um, and um, it also, if we become really wrapped up in thinking a lot about this, there comes some point where we say, oh my gosh, all this proliferation of thought is harmful. <laughs> you know, it's leading to suffering. <laughs> so, you know, the, the terrible contortions that people go through, should I use paper bags? Well, there's deforestation. Should I use plastic bags? Well, 
you know, landfills. Oh, no, <laughs> you know, I can't use any bags. What about cotton bags? Well, cotton uses a huge amount of pesticide, you know. <laughs> so um, I'm making a little bit of a joke there, but um, at some point it's like this, this points right at how do we live well? How do we live without struggle? We do the best we can, we try, and we let go, and we have a lot of compassion and love, and we realize that everyone is in this situation, and so we soften our heart to others also. It's not easy for anyone out there. And the precepts, I think, when they get when we get to the skillful, unskillful dimension, it's it's about how do we balance all that and live with others well. Not that that's easy, but it's it's better than a set of five strictures, right? So, I yeah. Um, also, I think you asked if we would change any of them. Yeah, did you want to change any of them? Well, the one about sexual misconduct, I think um, the word misconduct I would probably change to... Um, abuse or disrespect or or even uh, desecration because sex is really a sacred thing and it's uh, it should not be desacralized mm. in any way. Misconduct is so I don't know it's, it's yeah, so that word doesn't work. Yeah, so you want something that actually includes that sex has a, a positive aspect to it that needs to be protected. Right. I think that's that's important, is the element of respect. Um, like, for example, when we think uh, sexual fantasies about somebody, even if we're sure, up, down, and sideways, that we're never going to act on them, to do that, even to do that about somebody we have to have a little bit of objectification of that person to bring them into our mind as an object and imagine certain things about them. It's act, those thoughts are actually inherently disrespectful um, in a certain way. And to see that in ourselves, um, we may still do it, and then we can realize, eh, that doesn't feel so good. So, yeah, I appreciate your wanting to, um, to s strengthen that one in a certain way. Thank you. I see this was a juicy topic. We're already five minutes over. Maybe we'll have to talk about ethics again sometime. It's something near and dear to our heart, right? And then, yeah, as is walking this path. So thank you. I very much appreciate all of your sincerity to bring in the word that you used. Thank you for your practice. <laughs>